Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome John Leland to the show. John is the Vice President of Insights and Head of Environmental Impact at Kickstarter, the world's largest platform for crowdfunding creative work. He leads data science, analytics, user research, and strategy in addition to the company's environmental commitments. He is also the creator of This Place Will Be Water, a climate change mobilization campaign focused on sea level rise with thousands of participants across 30 countries and recently launched This Place Will Burn, mapping the increase in major wildfires fueled by climate change in the next 40 years. Previously, he worked on environmental justice issues as an advisor to the Palau Mission to the UN and at the NRDC. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's uh, sunny and blazing hot in New York City today. <laughs> and I was going to ask where you're at, so thank you for sharing that. We're, I'm down in Dallas, and I think we're going to hit the mid-90s today, so I think we're pretty comparable. Yeah, it's, it's about the same here. And in terms of where to be in the United States right now, I'm... I'm uh, I feel very lucky to be on the East Coast at the moment. (laughs) Yes, and we'll get to that later in our show. But I want to start with this question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? It's a broad question. I mean, I think for this podcast, I think um, something that might be interesting is uh, my origin story of getting into into climate, because it was not something I was looking to get involved in. and I wound up getting looped into uh, supporting the ambassador to the nation of Palau back in 2012. I was a, a law student at the time. And in the United Nations, you don't think about it, but you have these small countries that don't have many people. Right? Palau is, I think, about 30,000 to 50,000 people. There's not that many people in Palau, and they have to negotiate and um, advocate their interests on an international stage going up against behemoths like the United States and these massive countries that have a ton of resources and a, and a ton of people. Um, and so I wound up getting involved in supporting the, the ambassador to the United Nations from Plow. And he asked me to work on developing a uh, climate proposal for them. Um, it was a position paper. It's essentially building, you know, what, what would a world climate organization modeled after the WTO look like? And um, wound up going to the Security Council meeting in 2012, which was the first Security Council meeting on climate change. And the president of Nauru spoke um, in a heartbreaking fashion about how his country was going to disappear within his lifetime. And that was really a, a wake-up call for me in terms of just, you know, how really how significant the impacts were, were going to be of climate change and how, um, how soon they would hit. You know, I had a similar situation recently. I was reading a book or an article, and they mentioned Kiribati. Now, I've heard the name in my lifetime, but I don't know where it's located. 
and I learned that Kiribati, it's in the Pacific Ocean, it's only about a meter above sea level. And some of the challenges that they're going to face as, you know, the sea levels do rise. And to your point, you know, earlier we talked about New York and I'm here in Dallas. And I think we often forget the other parts of the world just because we're engaged in daily life and, you know, and just not out of any kind of malice, just ignorance. But we forget the other parts of the world and some of the challenges that they face. So I really appreciate you highlighting that and sharing that. So, John, you're with Kickstarter, and I'm sure almost everyone in the audience has heard of Kickstarter. But if you will, or if you can, can you give a brief overview of Kickstarter? Sure. Uh, Kickstarter is a crowdfunding platform. Uh, It's rewards-based where people raise money for uh, what we call creative projects. So you have to be making something to share with others. There's no like, you know, health bills or anything like that on the platform. It's all films, uh, new innovations, design, technology, uh, games, music, art. Um, And we are the largest crowdfunding platform in the world for doing that kind of creative work. And I mentioned to you before we started recording that I had Emma Rose of Final Straw on the show several episodes ago, and she was able to raise over a million dollars in Kickstarter and has subsequently raised other projects too. So I appreciate you sharing that. What are some of the more interesting projects that you've seen on Kickstarter or some that have surprised you? Yeah, so the joy of working at Kickstarter is, is seeing a constant flow of surprising ideas and projects come to the platform. Um, some of my favorite uh, that come to mind right now are uh, that are just unexpected projects that funded were silent meditation. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a meditator and I actually have done a meditation project on Kickstarter in the past. Um, but this was a vinyl record that is two sides of just complete silence. And how much were they able to raise? They raised about $6,000 and I think it was acquired by a museum, the project. So it was extraordinarily successful. <laughs> wow, that, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, 206 backers uh, supported <laughs> supported the vinyl pressing of, of Complete Silence. Wow. Um, and in a different direction, one of my favorite projects of all time that I think speaks to one of the things I really love about, about the platform and what it can do is a project called That Dragon Cancer, which is a uh, video game um, that... Uh, by a developer who lost his uh, his very young son to cancer, and he created a video game about this experience. And it's a, it's a really heartbreaking work. It's also the sort of thing that would never get made by a publisher, right? And mm-hmm. you know, a, a big part of the reason why I, I love working at Kickstarter is, is it provides the opportunity for something that kind of beautiful, but also unusual. It doesn't fit into any sort of mold of the way things are made. Uh, no games publisher is going to, to fund the development of a video game about losing your five-year-old son to cancer. Uh, right. But people on Kickstarter will. And you know, 3,500 some backers pledged more than $100,000 to uh, make that, that project come to life. Um, and that's the sort of thing that that is just sort of really beautiful to see that really is amazing and before we switch gears off of kickstarter i know there are people listening that perhaps have ideas or want to put a campaign on kickstarter if you could share a couple of your thoughts regarding what you think maybe one two three best ways best practices for them to do so i'd really appreciate it 
Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think doing a Kickstarter campaign is difficult uh, in a lot of respects, but it, it should be if you're if you're trying to raise a lot of money. And a lot, of, you really just want to think about, you know, once you have a, an idea that you really think is strong and solid, and you think has a lot of potential. One, how do you communicate that idea in a way that's not about your own attachment and interest in the idea, but communicating it in a way that are gonna, is going to get people excited? Who is your audience being very specific about who are the communities that you're looking to engage to support your work and going to them and starting to build connections to them before you launch? So getting your idea in front of people, not just launching cold to the world, but starting to engage the audiences that you are specifically targeting with your work, because that's critical for success on Kickstarter. And the more pre-work you do to sort of build that foundational base of support. And, you know, that, those people might exist in Reddit forums. They might be on subscribers to a certain newsletter. They might have meetups, uh, which I guess now are virtual meetups, figuring out where those people congregate, engaging them early in your project. So they also feel some, investment in it. They feel a a personal attachment to not just liking the idea, but to the success of this idea uh, can really help give you the foundation so that when you do launch on Kickstarter, you have that sort of base of support, you know, that you, you figured out how to, how to connect that concept to people in communities that you are trying to reach through your campaign um, and having a plan for the whole 30 days. Kickstarter is not something where you can just sort of put an idea up and then uh, it's not a set it and forget it platform. You have to have a plan for how you're going to launch on day one and how you're going to grow your audience from there. So so that might be digital marketing. It might be reaching out to bloggers or press, things like that. So having that plan in place is, and, and all that pre-work is, is critical. It's all about what you do beforehand. It's not what you do during the campaign. So for all of you that are on the fence about a campaign, now you have the secret, go do it. <laughs> John, I would be remiss not to ask you have you ever had any campaigns on Kickstarter? Yes, uh, I've had four now, and I have one that is currently live that's relevant to this discussion uh, called This Place Will Burn, uh, which is, <laughs> is uh, it's a factual statement about many places uh, currently in the United States, what's happening currently, but is, is going to be increasingly the case. So it's a project where we've made the first county-level map of... Um, that shows how climate change is increasing the frequency of very large wildfires uh, in the United States. And we're pairing that with a set of posters and biodegradable stickers that people in these communities can post either in their storefronts or on telephone poles and uh, on their cars that raise kind of awareness and the alarm about just what's happening in these communities. And this isn't over the long term. This is in the next two decades, two to, two to three decades. Um, that we're seeing these increases as evidenced by what's happening in California right now. Um, The intention of the project is really to get people in communities that, I think people try not to think about climate change if they can help it because it's it's a scary problem and it's hard to confront. Uh, But the more that people are confronted with the reality of climate change, the more they're compelled to act in the face of it. So it's a way of Kind of putting these these stark, personalized, localized reminders in communities about the danger that climate change poses and uh, compel compels people to to mobilize on the crisis. So, what kind of data are you collecting for that information? 
I worked with uh, a climate scientist um, from uh, University of Idaho, and he had written a, a, a published a paper on this with a number of other academics. Uh, but the data was all in these giant blocks overlaid on the United States, and it was in a PDF. Right, I, I found this across the kind of climate science space is that there's a ton of really interesting information that is buried in, in PDFs uh, that is entirely inaccessible to the, uh, the lay person. And so I reached out to him, asked him to, to give me the data, and we, re, we, we reworked it to map it to county lines uh, because people actually know what county they live in. It's a political boundary, so it's easier to mobilize people and do political messaging with that sort of boundary in place and um, then built a, a digital uh, interactive map. When a person logs onto this map, will they be able to know when their particular county or area or region will essentially move into, you know, perhaps a high danger zone? Yeah, it'll show kind of where, what the frequency of these large fires uh, has been and what they're going to be in the next couple of decades. Uh, you can, anyone can see the map at thisplacewillburn.org. I will put a link in the show notes. You mentioned four campaigns. What are the other campaigns or future campaigns? Uh, the other campaigns uh, were, you know, you'll sense a theme. Uh, this place will be water, uh, which is a similar project, but centered on sea level rise. <laughs> so people can, can check that project out. It's thisplacewillbewater.org. Uh, we've had now thousands of people participate in that project across the world, uh, posting stickers of uh, places that will be underwater uh, due to climate change. Uh, we did a, a poster project for the climate strike. It was small and, and very quick. Um, just in a couple of weeks last year. Um, and then my first project was a, a meditation project called Animal Meditations, which are a, a series of meditations on what it's like to, what it might be like to be uh, specific animals. So as a fellow meditator, I have to ask you, what kind of meditation do you do at this time and how frequently? Um, I do mindfulness meditation uh, once or twice a day. And for how long? 20 minutes, uh, ideally. Sometimes it's shorter, though. <laughs> and again, I'm asking for personal reasons. I've been doing it for about 20 years. How have you seen it change your life? Or have you? Uh, I, no, I certainly have. I think it's hard to explain how, it, how it's changed my life, but it certainly helps me take a step back and, uh, and approach even something as terrifying as climate change with a certain amount of equanimity. Um, you know, it, it helps you sit in a position that uh, accepts the way that things change and that things always change. Uh, climate change is certainly a major change that we're seeing in, in the world, and it can be scary and overwhelming. And meditation is really helpful at just sort of sitting with change and accepting it, not overreacting to it. Uh, at least, uh, at least not too much emotionally where it's paralyzing. You know, I, I remain very motivated to fight climate change, but I'm not overcome by the terror of it. I can definitely relate regarding the equanimity piece. My wife often says, Raj, if we won the lottery or if I told you something bad really happened, you pretty much have the same reaction. So, <laughs> I don't know if You're it's a good a thing or a bad place, thing. Place then. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> that's my story on meditation. <laughs> so... I'm going to switch gears. You know, the ambassador of Palau, that experience you had, mm -hmm. you had many different roads you can take. Crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. So mm -hmm. 
what really moved you? What drove you to move into this, you know, the sustainability sector? Well, it's been a uh, not a linear path. <laughs> so from uh, from that experience, I worked. Uh, you know, I was in law school at uh, Stanford at the time, and I worked in the environmental law clinic at Stanford, and um, did a number of uh, worked for the National Resources Defense Council. I wound up deciding that environmental law was not the path I wanted to be on, uh, specifically because law was not the path I wanted to be on. <laughs> um, so I wound up leaving that path and and starting my own small tech company in San Francisco, which then led me to Kickstarter after that shut down. And I've been at Kickstarter for six years. Um, and my job has not been, you know, I wasn't hired to do sustainability there. And I've had pretty much every job at Kickstarter. I'm currently the vice president of Insights. So I'm, I oversee uh, our data science, user research, analytics. But I'm also kind of the uh, one of the old men of, of Kickstarter who've just been around forever and, and know where all the, the bodies are buried. And um, a few years ago, when we reincorporated as a public benefit corporation, uh, we included environmental commitments in that in our charter. Uh, and knowing that our organization had made those commitments and that this was an issue that I cared a lot about, and I saw the opportunity to leverage a company I already worked for instead of leaving Kickstarter to do sustainability, Kickstarter is a huge platform that has a lot of leverage in the world. Uh, particularly when you look at the, the companies that have gotten their start on Kickstarter, they're much bigger than Kickstarter itself. You have uh, Peloton, Allbirds, Oculus, billion dollar plus companies uh, that have gotten their start there. And if we can, if I can leverage the platform to build sustainability, sustainable principles into these companies at an early stage, I saw that as a really great opportunity to, uh, pursue that work. Um, and I've been leading our environmental impact work for the last couple of years as a result. So you mentioned Kickstarter as a benefit corporation or a B Corp. Mm -hmm. For those that might not be familiar, can you share a little bit about what a B Corp is and then perhaps uh, a few items from the Kickstarter charter? Sure. So the, the world of uh, benefit corporations and B Corps is pretty confusing. There's something called being a, a B Corp certification, which uh, is a independent organization that certifies companies uh, to be a B Corp. They can be any, you know, they can be a for-profit regular C Corp, which is a legal entity for a for-profit company. Uh, but as long as they meet the requirements or criteria of uh, B Labs, which runs the certification, you can get a B Corporation certification every year. There's a lot of companies that have, have been certified as B Corps, uh, and we are certified as a B Corp. You can go one step further as a company which, uh, with a um, legally reincorporating or designating your company as a, as a public benefit corporation. This is a relatively new legal construct, but it basically allows you to put into the charter of a for-profit company that the purpose of the company has public benefits as opposed to maximizing shareholder value, right? So part of the, the challenge that we've seen with capitalism in its modern form is that the legal requirement that a corporation maximize shareholder value uh, has skewed the incentives and legal obligations of corporations to destroy the environment um, and destroy communities. And so the public benefit corporation allows you to create a company that 
has as its legal obligations uh, these core public benefits so that you can't have shareholders just forcing a company to uh, take sort of socially destructive courses of action. And can you share a few of the public benefits from Kickstarter's charter? So Kickstarter's uh, charter states that our primary mission is to help bring creative projects to life. So we uh, and we commit in that to engaging beyond our walls with the greater issues and conversations that affect artists and creators. Now, typically, that's been issues around arts funding. So advocating in Congress for continued funding of the NEA when that's been threatened, the National Endowment for the Arts. But we see actually uh, climate change as uh, fitting within this uh, obligation because climate change uh, impacts everyone. Um, and uh, it's so universal that, that to support artists and creators means uh, fighting climate change. Uh, we make commitments around never selling user data to third parties. Uh, we commit to having privacy policies that are fair and transparent. Um, we don't use any, we also commit to not using any like kind of tax loopholes or um, even legal, like kind of quasi-legal tax management strategies that, you know, seek to reduce the company's tax burden. We think it's important for companies to just pay their fair share of taxes. Uh, something I would like to see more companies do, to be honest. Um, and we also, we also explicitly say that we'll, we'll seek to limit uh, our environmental impact. Um, and that includes our own impact as a, as a, as a company, as an organization that you know, has a building and has employees and servers, but also um, managing the platform itself, uh, the ecosystem itself to make better decisions um, and more sustainable decisions about the products and projects that they're creating. And I'm going to put a link to the Kickstarter charter in the show notes. And for you audience members, I highly recommend you check out the Easter egg of the Read the Creative Independent while you're on their site. John, can you share a little bit about the Creative Independent? <laughs> yeah, the Creative Independent is a... Um, uh, independent uh, publication that uh, publishes interviews with artists and creators across all disciplines, uh, really about the creative process. They're, they tend to be very kind of intimate, focused interviews about the challenges or the, or the ways that they approach making creative work. We try to pull out insights from those that can be helpful to creators. And we also publish guides that might be helpful to independent creators. So whether that's how you might manage your taxes as an independent creator or just dealing with things like writer's block. Um, it's a really kind of it has an approach of, of what we call slow internet. Uh, so it doesn't put out a ton of content all the time, um, but we put out a few interviews every week typically, uh, and they are very well, very well done and very well curated. Well, definitely spoke to me. The slow internet piece I really love and I've been lost in a few of the articles there. I love them, especially the one that came out most recently regarding the woman in salt. So I appreciate you sharing that. So I'm going to ask you, John, what are the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on this journey? Eight years-ish now, specifically in the sustainability piece. What comes to mind for you that you would say, you know, these are three or four lessons that I've taken away? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interest in getting into... Uh, the climate space, which is fantastic. And, you know, 
historically, I've seen a lot of conversations about what's the right place to be working on this issue. And I really think the right, there, it's such a huge issue. It, there's no single right answer to that. And so you have to find, I'd say first thing is like, you just have to start working on it, right? Find the intersection of this very broad, expansive uh, area and how that intersects with your resources, your talents, your interests, and start building stuff. And it doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world. You can start working on small projects, get involved with companies that look like they're doing something interesting and start talking to them and seeing if you can help out. There's, there's so much opportunity in the space that it's almost overwhelming. But I think the challenge there is that you don't start working <laughs> in the space because you're just sort of, you're learning and sitting back uh, and absorbing a lot. And I think it's way more beneficial to sort of get messy with building something in the space, even if it's small, helping other you know, organizations in the space, volunteering, something, you know, stuff like that. There's, there's an endless array of possibilities and then more doors open up from there. You know, that, that's great. I'm going to ask you a very personal question here. You mentioned you were going to law school earlier. Mm -hmm. You stopped mid-journey. You took a right turn. Yeah. If there's someone listening right now that is on the fence, and I'm not looking to derail anyone's career here, but, you know, what was that feeling like and some of the questions that you had to ask yourself when you made that decision to change direction? Uh, it was a terrible feeling. Uh, you know, particularly in a grad school program like that, that's very expensive. You're sort of locked in to a certain extent. And so to, to kind of wake up to the realization that I wasn't on the path I wanted to be on and I really needed to make a change was very, very scary. Um, and, you know, I think part of what helped me, a lot of what helped me get out of that path was a recognition that I didn't have to figure out the thing for me, right? I think there's um, there's a mythology around finding like the, the one right true calling for yourself and instead started really you know, pushing myself. It took a lot of work, but pushing myself to really explore as much as possible and start working with as many different types of people as I could, uh, get involved in as many kind of weird, different projects as I could get involved in. And that led me on a, on a journey that I couldn't have planned Right. I'm very great. I'm very happy to have landed at Kickstarter. It was the right thing for me. But if I had set as my intention to end up in this place, I don't think I could have gotten here. Uh, it had to be a little bit more messy and a, a journey that where I was, I was pushing myself to move forward without knowing where that journey would take me. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling, I think, for most people, particularly someone who is relatively risk averse because being a lawyer, you're trained in being risk averse. So it's, it's, particularly, <laughs> it's particularly scary for, for those of us with legal training. Um, but I'm, I'm fortunate that it, that it ended, you know, landed me someplace that I'm very happy to be. Well, I think being a lawyer is also being trained to be a pessimist. And yes. I think Kickstarter works with optimists, people are looking out to the future, which true. leads nicely to my next question, which you mentioned being the old man at Kickstarter, knowing where the quote-unquote bodies are buried, but without you know, revealing where the bodies are, 2025, what does Kickstarter look like? And I don't expect you to speak for the whole organization, obviously, but your vision of you know, what does Kickstarter look like in the future? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is something I'm working on <laughs> presently. Kickstarter can go in a lot, of, a lot of directions. 
I don't know exactly where Kickstarter will be by 2025. And that's part of the joy of, of the company and the platform. The, the point of Kickstarter, and this is something that, that Aziz, our current CEO, uh, described Kickstarter to me in this way uh, six months ago or so. He said it, it should be primordial soup, right? It should be the bubbling, messy, frothy <laughs> primordial soup from which new ideas emerge. Um, and so it's, from our perspective, it's a question of, well, how do you maintain that primordial soup and what are the ingredients of it? Uh, within a changing environment. We look to externally what's happening. The COVID epidemic has decimated creative industries and independent creators in particular. Um, artists, anyone that's that's working in and with a sorts of unstable or partial income has been really deeply affected by it. So we're looking at ways that we can increase our support for those for those creators and build in new forms of capital and new ways that people can engage with projects um, that doesn't require so such an intense kind of discovery process um, and engagement with each individual project, but can we create an experience, experience or set of experiences that allows for lighter engagement, uh, but just as much reward back for, for backers. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to the future of dance, theater, film, music, all of which are really struggling right now uh, because people can't make work the way that they used to. Um, so we will have to adapt as those industries adapt, as people find new ways to make work and find new ways to uh, consume work um, from those kinds of artists. Well, I look forward to watching the next evolution of Kickstarter. Last question is, and you've already peppered the conversation with quite a few bits of advice along the way, but if you could share some specific advice or words of wisdom with the audience? It could be professional or personal. What would it be? <laughs> That's such a big question. <laughs> um, I've certainly sprinkled this conversation with, with quite a bit of advice. You know, something I think about with the climate space is to recognize it, particularly from a, from a social perspective, to recognize what an amazing opportunity that this moment represents. And I think... You know, Watching kind of the Republican National Convention, sorry, bring politics into it, but but a, a, the pessimistic view and divisive, the partisan view that we currently have of American society in particular, you know, can feel we're in this moment where people feel very disconnected from each other, um, and a lot of people feel uh, a lack of community and a lack of purpose in their lives, and and those things have, are those those that vacuum. And our society is leading to things like QAnon taking off, which is terrifying, right? But people are finding purpose and community through that conspiracy theory. Climate change, I view as, as just this opportunity to do the same thing, but for good, <laughs> right? As terrifying as it is, it provides us a moment to band together and work together um, at, at, for a common cause that is undeniably good. Uh, and so... I think something I would just ask people to keep in mind as they go on their own journeys on how to how they want to participate in the uh, clean tech space or, or climate movement is just to keep that opportunity in mind. And as, as they do their work and how they engage people in their work um, to try to invite them into participating in this collective, maybe joyful um, fight 
to save our planet and save save our civilization. I think you've given people something to think about. You know, also with your campaigns, this place will burn, this place will be water. I think to a certain extent, people have the opportunity to say this place will be X, question mark. Mm -hmm. They can choose what this place will be. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything else I should have asked you that I have not? I don't think so. We covered a lot. Well, John, I really appreciate it. I look forward to watching Kickstarter grow and catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Raj. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.